Uh, I actually had a time period for a couple months where Will called me ahead of time and wanted to make sure uh, that I had a sermon ready in case the baby were to come Sunday morning. So for, I've had a sermon on the side just in case. Uh, luckily, it did not come Sunday morning. It would have been a very short sermon, at least if it was two weeks ago. But anyways, turn to the book of Psalms, chapter 1. Just hear the very words of the Lord himself when he speaks to us through the psalmist, beginning in verse 1, saying, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands, or, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Would you pray with me, please? Father, please bless bless the reading of your word. Please bless the time of the preaching of it. Help us to glean truths from it, to meditate on it deeply, and may we emulate and display it through your Son, Jesus Christ, and it is in his name we pray today. Amen. Would you describe your life as prosperous today? Do you see that with your health and how much how healthy you are compared to the people around you? Do you see that with your education and how many letters you have behind your name or maybe just the common sense and the street smarts you have compared to everyone? Maybe you see it with your bank account and how much you've made with the stock market or real estate or your business savvy or maybe Bitcoin. Do you see your life as prosperous today? In our psalm, God is presenting us two different paths. There is the path of the wicked man, and then there is the path of the blessed man. And with these two paths, God is saying there's great blessing, there's great joy, there's great prosperity found in following after the path of the righteous man, man, after the path of the blessed man. In fact, when we think of that word blessed, we say that so often, especially in churches, Do we know what actually the word blessed means? Because at least in Psalm 1, the the sense we have of what God is saying through that word is that things will go well for the person who does these things. So with that idea, with these two paths, with Psalm 1, what are we as Christians to do with this passage? How are we to respond today? Is God promising us that as long as we follow after the path of the righteous man, as long as we do all these things that are presented to us, then we're going to have a giant bank account where our family's going to be huge. We're going to find all these blessings. Is that really what we are to take away from here? Well, when we take a step back and we understand the the differences of what we have, and we as Christians coming back to the psalm, we can actually still have the main point presented to us here, 
that God has through Psalm, the very thrust of Psalm 1, and it is this, that God's people find God's blessing when they are firmly rooted in God's word. Let me say that one more time for you. It is that God's people find God's blessing when they are firmly rooted in God's word. Because look back at the psalm. Look back at verse 1 at what it says. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. There is zero corrupting influence of this righteous man's life, of this blessed man pursuing the way of God. He's not trying to find the best top 10 business practices of the counsel of wicked. He's not standing in line for the next movie or ball game in spite of coronavirus right now. He's not standing in line with the sinners. He's not sitting down and having another drink and mocking and scoffing with scoffers. In fact, even look at verse 1 again. Look, and you can see a progression here, that he's not walking, he's not standing, he's not sitting, he's not, there's no him, he's not coming back and looking again and saying, maybe there is something I can come and I can bring from the wicked and come back and bring it back to the path of the blessed man. No, there's no influence in this blessed man's life. And we can immediately begin to apply this truth to our own lives or ask ourselves, is this how we view our relationship with God? Is this how we view a faithful walk with God himself? Is this what it means for us to be Christians today? Because we can ask ourselves, where do we get our influence in society? Do we find more influence coming from what we read on social media? Do we find more influence in our views of American politics? Or maybe it's the fact that we decide that American politics should, def should inform how we view scripture rather than scripture informing how we view politics. Or maybe it's something just in our own lives, of how we approach other people, such as evangelism, where we want to change our habits and say, is, well, if I just change my humor a little bit, if I just change my language, this person's going to feel more comfortable around me. He's, he's going to see that Christianity is very approachable. I, I can actually be, I can go to church. That guy's cool. He's hip. He's with it. Is that what we're called to do with Christianity? Is that what scripture is commanding us? Or even, is that how the blessed man is viewing his relationship with God here. Where is he getting his greatest influence? Because look back at verse 2. Look at what it tells us. It says that his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's not picking up Robert Machaney just in the morning and picking four chapters from the Old Testament making some generic application in the morning, and then going about his business. No, he is a picture for us today of what it means for us to have private devotions. We, we don't just have a couple chapters in the morning and then go about our business, but we are actually called to be, have it be the meditations of our heart day in and day out. It is the thing that we're talking with other people. It is the thing that comes up in our conversation. It is the thing that we are applying to our lives day in and day out. That is the very picture of what the blessed man here is displaying for us. And even with that idea of fellowship that we have, of this meditation, that even the New Testament later on, we can see that the Apostle Paul is telling us the same thing for fellowship. Because think of Colossians chapter 3, 16, and what he tells us. He 
The Apostle Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. Because that idea of meditation in verse 2 that we see, of what the, the psalmist is referring to here, he's actually referring back in the Old Testament. He's referring to a moment back in the book of Joshua, chapter 1, right before the people of Israel are about to cross into the promised land. They are actually coming into the promised land, about to cross the Jordan, and what God refers to, to Joshua, is this same idea of meditation. Because verse 8 says that this, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosper, and then you will have good success. But even that moment in Joshua chapter 1 and the psalm, Psalm 1 verse 2, is referring back to God's law of him giving these ideas of covenant blessings and curses. Think of the chapters Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26, where God is speaking to the nation of Israel, and he's telling them, I brought you into this pro- I'm bringing you into this promised land, and I'm going to give great blessing to you if you, if you keep Torah, if you keep the law and do all these things, then your family is going to be like the Duggards. Your, the crops are going to grow up from the ground, I am going to keep you in the land. You're going to find all this blessing and prosperity of dwelling in the land. But if you do not follow Torah, if you do not meditate on it day and night, I am going to rain fire from heaven. I am going to destroy your crops. I am going to destroy your family and ultimately bring you into exile. So with that, really we can actually see the fact that Psalm 1 is just reflecting on, it's a reflection of Deuteronomy 28, these ideas of covenant blessings and curses that God has given the nation of Israel. Because look, and we can see this idea of prosperity that the nation of Israel will receive. The, the blessed man is receiving all these covenant blessings blessings, in having this right relationship with God. See it in verse 3 of the same exact idea. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither, and all he does, he prospers. He is living in right relationship with the covenant-keeping God of Israel. He's receiving all these blessings of dwelling in the land, of having this prosperous relationship with God. But as I've already referred to, and we can come back to the same question, is this how we are to view Psalm 1 as Christians today? Is, are we promised as long as we are faithful to God as long as we keep scripture, that we're going to have a pleasant life in society. We're going to have a pleasant life in general. It's hard for us to come to that conclusion, especially when we turn to the New Testament and we see that Christ's public ministry is continually reminding us of the suffering that he faced and the suffering that he calls for all of us to face. In fact, even turn to the Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the books of the New Testament And many of those books were spent in prison. That there's this this, this shift, this reversal that goes on in the New Testament, that if you're faithfully following God, you're not going to have this, this physical prosperity in life. You're almost just promising you're going to suffer, and that's a sign of following faithfully God. 
So how are we as Christians to read this verse? What are we to be looking at? Because there still is this idea of spiritual prosperity that we receive in having this relationship with God, of being in right relationship with him, of seeking to follow this path of the righteous man. Because think of the, our own confessional standard. If, we, if you are Presbyterian, or Hope Presbyterian Church at least, we follow the Westminster Shorter Catechism as one of our confessional standards. And it tells us that there are actually benefits we receive in having redemption applied to us. That we have assurance of God's love. We are assured that God is not bringing condemning wrath upon us, that we actually come into relationship where we are reconciled with him. Number two, we have peace of conscience. From our own standpoint, we are not left unsure of our shame and our guilt and our sin, but we know that it is forgiven at the cross through what Christ has accomplished for us. Number three, we actually have real joy. We have real happiness found in the indwelling Holy Spirit who is confirming to us. He is speaking through us. Read the book of Romans chapter 8 of him speaking along with our spirit and comforting us. Number Four, we're actually growing in our relationship with God. That's actually one of the signs that we have this, this relationship, this spiritual prosperous relationship with the Lord, is we're growing. Number five, we are promised that if we're seeking to be faithful, if we're seeking to, to, to follow this, that we will persevere to the end. That if we are turning to Christ in faith and repentance, if we have truly turned and repented of our sins and turned to him as our Savior and Lord, that we actually have these promises applied to us today. But we can even think of this in a very practical sense. To the book of James, if you were, uh, you don't actually have to physically turn there, but if you were studying with us Wednesday night, you know at the end, James chapter 5, 16, the only way I remember this verse is not in the ESV, but actually in the King James Version. It says, the fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And that's speaking of a practical righteousness, of one that's faithfully following God, that there's actually success found in his prayer. But we can ask the opposite question. What does it mean for one who is unrighteous, who is not seeking to be faithful? What does his prayer life look like? we can at least tell ourselves that he's not the person we are calling at 2 o'clock in the morning. He's not the person that we have leading our, our prayer group. He's not the one that we have leading our prayer chain at church. There actually are real benefits we see of seeking to have Scripture dwell in us richly, of meditating on it deeply, of seeking to actually follow what God has given us in his word of to be faithful followers of what God has commanded us. This is the very picture of what the blessed man in Psalm 1 is telling us. He is living the very point of the psalm that I told us already. He is living the thrust of it, which is that God's people find God's blessing when they are firmly rooted in God's word. But that's just the picture of the blessed man. That's the first path we see. But turn again, turn back to psalm, and we can see the other path that is presented to us, the path of the wicked man. And what does God tell us that happens for the, the people that are not faithfully followed, that are not in, in relationship with God, those that are actively living this lifestyle of sin, the wicked? Because verse 4 says that the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. And that picture is actually an agricultural image used in the Old Testament, used 
by ancient Israel because they would have what was called a winnowing fork. It was basically a farming tool where they would put barley and they would put any type of product on it and they would throw it into the air and then when they threw it back, the, the product, the grain would come back to the ground, but the shaft would be driven away by the wind. But this is so often used in the Old Testament of God bringing judgment on the wicked, of God bringing judgment on wicked nations, of judging sin, in the, of really actually bringing judgment on sin. We can ask ourselves, because we see that picture in the Old Testament, we even see it in the New Testament of God judging sin, but you might look outside the window, you might read the news day to day, or you might just be skeptical in general and be asking yourself, does God actually judge sin today? Does he judge it? Because it seems like when I look at society, when I look at the wrongs, especially how much the news is readily prevalent to us, that it seems like God doesn't judge sin in general. It's not a new question because the book right before Psalms in the book of Job when Job's friends are confronting him and saying that the wicked will not prosper, and then Job responds in chapter 21 telling him, well, the wicked, they actually do prosper. It doesn't seem like God is judging sin in this life. And Job is actually questioning that practice. So what are we to believe today? What does scripture tell us about God and sin? Does he actually judge it in this world? Because we can nuance, and we see in Psalm chapter 1, two principles we can take away from. That there is a current judgment, and then there is a climactic judgment. But first, let's, let's look at that current judgment, seen in verse 4, that he, the wicked are like shaft, that the wind drives away. God does bring judgment on sin. We can see this in a, in a practical way, not even talking about how God does it, but just facing the fallen condition of our world that there are actually repercussions for going and living in sin. If you, we have that example in the Old Testament. We have that as David, who was the greatest king of Israel. He slept with Uriah, or he slept with Bathsheba, and he killed Uriah, uh, Bathsheba's husband, and he repents of his sin. He repents. We have that in Psalm 51, but what happens is that for the, David loses his first child, and David actually, the, king, the golden age of his kingdom, never lives up to that same principle. It never lives up to the, the, the same level it was at because his family is continually trying to usurp his authority, usurp his throne for the rest of 2 Samuel. Then every king that comes after him is in a decreasing fashion, not in the same level of faithfulness that David was. That we have that example of seeing that there are repercussions even for sometimes when we do sin. We can see that for something as mundane as a lie that we tell someone. And then we tell an, another lie to that person. And we tell another lie. And then we tell a lie to someone else to cover up that lie. And soon you have a whole story of lies that you have presented. And the second that you are found out, we are called a liar. Think of it. Think of the, something more serious, such as like the online pornography industry and how our society has taught us that that's a very natural thing for people to do, even though there are studies that have been proven that that practice rewires people's brains to desire it more and more, to even desire it at times more than actual human interaction. But there is a reality that sin does bring repercussions. How much more do we see that when we see God who brings judgment on sin in this world? 
But if you're asking yourself, if you're still skeptical and saying, I don't, I, I don't see God judging sin in my life right now. I don't think that's actually true. I would be very weary of thinking that because one of the practices, one of the judgments that we see in the New Testament of God judging sin in this world is he just gives us what we want. You can see that in Romans 1 where God, the people that are practicing sin, God just gives them over to their desires. That's just current judgment in this world. That's just one facet. We could spend more time, but think of this climactic judgment that we see because turn back to verse 5. And it says, therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. That in a very limited Old Testament fashion, the psalmist here has a limited understanding that people will die, both the wicked and the blessed. They will stand before the Lord, and they will be judged for their sins. And we are left with this sombering note, this Sombering reminder in verse 6, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. We are left with these two paths, the path of the righteous man and the path of the wicked man. And we can ask ourselves today, which path have we been following? You might be sitting here today and you are self-consciously, you do see yourself as following the path of the wicked. You don't think God's going to judge sin one day. You don't think he's going to judge sin tomorrow in your life. He's not going to judge it the next month or a year from now or in your life at all. And you don't even think that there really is a judgment, a climactic final resurrection judgment where we will stand before God himself you might be taking another perspective and you're trying to follow this path of the righteous man's life. You're trying, to, you're trying to do this in your own power of saying, I'm a pretty good person. I think that as long as I'm trying my best, as long as I'm doing what's in my own power, I can stand before God and he's not going to look at the sin, those little things that I did. He's going to, I'm going to be able to live up to this principle of the blessed man, of be able to justify myself in God's sight. But may I suggest to both of those paths that if we are self-consciously think that that is a good enough answer, if that's even what the Old Testament is asking us, then we will stand in that day of judgment. And God will judge both paths. He will judge all sin. And if we are not seeking to have a right relationship with God, if we are not seeking to have our sins forgiven today, we will be declared guilty. We will be judged for our sins. And we will be punished. May I suggest to all of us that that is such an inadequate answer to how we should read Psalm, the, our Psalm today. That's not even a picture of what the psalmist is trying to have us understand. He understood that the life of a prosperous man is so much more than receiving these of the nation of Israel receiving these physical blessings. Because there was that assumption that when God gave them the law, that there was that reminder that he was the God who brought them out of the land of Egypt and brought them, is bringing them into this land of promise. That even in the Old Testament, even in Torah, there was a whole book of Leviticus of them having to sacrifice 
to God, to actually come into his holy presence, to be forgiven of their sins. In fact, later on, if we were to just keep reading the Psalms, it was our confession, or it was our assurance of pardon today, David himself refers back to this blessed man again. And he says another aspect of what the blessed man is like is one who has been reconciled to God. Because Psalm 32 tells us, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is that man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. That with Psalm 1, if we are seeking to actually follow this, we need to realize our need to actually, our inadequate ability in ourselves to justify ourselves in God's sight. That we need to actually be forgiven of our sins. That we need to come into this right relationship with the God of the universe. That we need to actually have our transgressions covered and atoned for. And we are promised here, we are actually reminded throughout the old, or throughout scripture, that God, in this, understanding this, has offered something so much greater than just the daily sacrifices of the Old Testaments, of bulls and goats that they would have to go yearly back to. But he actually offered something so much greater, his one and only son, who was the ultimate fulfillment of this blessed man here. That throughout his public ministry, he continually referred back to Torah and confronted the religious leaders telling them, have you not read what God tells us in scripture? It is written, you are surely mistaken. Now he had a very high view of scripture, of Torah. Not only did he have a high view of it, he came to fulfill it in his life. He actively fulfilled the righteous requirements needed to have the condemnation of our sin lifted from us. Not only that, but Christ didn't just actively live this life, but he died a sacrificial death at the cross. He took the very wrath of God for sins at the cross. And we who respond in faith, who are turning to Christ as our Savior and Lord, we can actually have this relationship, we can be forgiven of our sins, and we can be reconciled with this God of the universe. We're standing at that day of judgment told, us, told about in verse 5, and we are not standing in our own ability, but we are actually standing in the righteousness of Christ our Savior, and we will be, decla- we will be acquitted, we will be forgiven, and we will be brought into, and we are already brought into this relationship when we make that decision. And secondly, and finally, we can actually turn back to Psalm 1 and we can begin to read it properly again and understand God's people find God's blessing when they are firmly rooted in God's word. Because really, Psalm 1 is giving us two pictures, not just two paths, but it's giving us two pictures of relationships here. It gives us our relationship that we share with God and with Scripture And it shows us our relationship we have with the world. So if you today would consider yourself a Christian, if if you have turned to Christ as your Savior and your Lord today and you're seeking to follow him, here's how we can read Psalm 1 today. Here's how we can apply this to our lives. We can ask ourselves questions such as, what's your view of Scripture today, of all of the Bible? 
How do you view it in your relationship with God today? Are you seeking to, do you just see it as a chore in the morning? If it's just something you do maybe in the hour and you make some generic applications and then you go about your day. Going back to verse 2 of what the blessed man looks like here, he is one who is meditating on God's law. He's meditating on scripture day in and day out. He has a high view, even turning back to Christ himself who had a high view of the scriptures throughout his ministry. Is that our own view of how we view God's word? Do we seek to apply it to our lives? Do we seek to memorize it? Do we seek to talk about it with other people? Or maybe you know Greek, you know Hebrew, you know how to exegete a passage, and you understand the point of what a story is trying to tell us in the Bible, but then you go and you walk away and you don't actually seek to, what do I do now? How do I apply this to my life today? Second, that's, that's our first application. What's our view of scripture? But second, does theology trump your view of scripture today? Are you more quick to look to John Calvin, to Herman Bovink? This is not disparaging either of them. I love Herman Bovink. I love John Calvin. But are they your authority of what scripture says? Are you actually seeking to search the scriptures for yourself and faithfully, because this promise we have is that we, through the priesthood of all believers, can come to scripture, can interpret it rightly. And yes, we want to look at what other people have to say, but our authority ultimately and finally is what God has said through his word. Is that how you view it today? Even as an example in the Bible, there was a church in the book of Acts of the Bereans, and the apostle Paul came to them and he actually began to show them what Christ has accomplished at the cross. He showed that he is truly the Messiah. And the Bereans, they didn't say, oh, well, the Apostle Paul said it. That must be good enough for me. They actually go back to the scriptures. And they sought for themselves to see if those things were true. Is that how you view scripture today? Is it your final authority? And finally, are, what do you view your relationship with the world today? Because looking back to the whole picture of what Psalm 1 is presenting to us, it's not just telling us, choose the path of the righteous man, don't choose the path of the wicked. It says that as you choose the path of the righteous man, it's a complete and total rejection of all things with the wicked. Sometimes it's tempting for us to take the best principles, the best practices in the world of what we are questioning whether or not that's appropriate for Christians to do. And we just seek to relate ourselves as much to the world as we can when we know that they might not be right. They know it's probably sin or it's just a gray area. Is that how you view your walk with God today? Are you seeking to follow this path of righteousness while at the same time dabbling and looking for the best practices of the wicked? Would you describe your life as prosperous today. Because God in Psalm 1 is actually telling us there is great blessing, there is great joy, there is great prosperity in having this right relationship with me. That you can actually grow in your relationship with God. That you, through having this high view of scripture, of seeking to meditate on it day and night, of seeking to apply it to your life, you can actually grow and have this spiritually prosperous relationship that God is offering in Psalm 1. And it's actually through it 
that we are seeing his way where we can come and follow this path of the righteous man, where he has offered his one and only son, who was the ultimate form of this blessed man, who faithfully followed Torah, gave his life at the cross so that we could have our sins forgiven, and come back, read Psalm 1, meditate on it, and actually apply it to our lives. Would you pray with me, please?